Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> Files. Hello, my name is Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today, and I'm totally and utterly surrounded by the Grog Squad. Yes, we're coming live from the heart of Manchester, the greatest city in the world, <coughs> from Fanboy 3. <laughs> Take the scouts right, please. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we're delighted to invite uh, Chris McDowell uh, to uh, speak to us today. And I'm going to ask questions at the end. Is that all right, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah brilliant. Okay. But uh, the first thing I need to do, you know, in my uh, left, I've got the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. Would you like to give it a tap? I'm genuinely, this is the most excited moment of my life. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Ooh. <laughs> so she's, so she's constructed from uh, Stella Star, from Carla, and Doug McClure's legs. <laughs> Just a moment. We used that one last year. That's odd. Well, that's good, because we're going into the odd. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, Chris, you're, you're known for into the odd, and we'll get into that in a moment, but the first thing we always ask is, how did you start playing? So how did you get to role-playing games? So my introduction to, well, tabletop games as a whole was um, from a very intimidating figure which was a boy from the year above at school. Oh, yeah. And this was when I was about nine, ten years old. But if I try and picture it now, I still picture like a giant, like, like, like the way that uh, an 11-year-old boy would look to a 10-year-old boy. Yeah. Um, and this, you know, this great authority. And he, he was like one of the, the cooler kids in the year above. And we had like a show and tell sort of thing. And he brought in all of his Warhammer figures and White Dwarf magazines. And I, I grew up in a very small town in Staffordshire uh, where... I was loosely aware of D&D as a thing mm-hmm. from the cartoon as much as anything else. Um, but this was my first kind of exposure to the idea of like tabletop games. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, from there, me and a friend who were both very wowed by this display uh, sort of got into the Warhammer stuff uh, sort of quite heavily and started playing, you know, the miniature games and all that. And then some years, a couple of years later, we were at a... Uh, they used to do the Games Day Expo at the NEC, the big kind of annual uh, games workshop uh, sort of convention, I guess. And there was a little tiny table in the corner of the underground section of the convention hall, as I remember it, where there was Hogshead Publishing Table. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, where they had some copies of um, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, which yeah. I'd never seen in a games workshop. Mm-hmm. I'd never seen in a White Dwarf. So I thought, is this something someone's just made? Is this like a knockoff bootleg game? Yeah. Um, and then I started sort of paging through it. And I, I didn't understand what I was looking at because I was like, I, I recognize some of these things from Warhammer, but there's a lot of, a lot more tables, a lot more about characters. And it seems so obvious now, but at the time I sort of thought, well, this, this sounds interesting. It must be kind of like Warhammer Quest or mm. Hero Quest or like a board game like that. So we, we, we bought a book and then my friend and I tried to play it. 
and tried is the keyword <laughs> because we kind of didn't really know what an RPG is. And as much as I still have a lot of love for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, this was the first edition, and I feel like going in cold to that is quite a quite a jump. Yeah. <laughs> it's not necessarily what I would call a good intro game to go in completely cold without yeah. somebody who knows how to play or run an RPG. Um, but that kind of was the spark. And then from there, I kind of, over the years, uh, sort of dabbled with other systems and sort of discovered sort of D&D, but then uh, sort of hit, hit my stride when I discovered sort of what's going on with sort of the OSR and like the old school revival or renaissance or whatever. Um, and these games that kind of take what I sort of wanted and imagined Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay to be and but made it a little bit more something I could actually digest. Yes. Uh, and by, by that point, I'd, you know, I'd learned a little bit along the way as well myself, so I wasn't going in quite as uh, blindly as I was as a child. Um, but yeah, and, and then... I mean, I'm just going to keep going until I yeah, yeah. talk about how I got here today, if you yeah. want. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I need to stop. <laughs> no, just to, just to take, take you back on, uh, on that um, the Warhammer. So was it the fantasy or the um, 4K? Well, I remember, I remember we, really got, we really got into like looking through the, the White Dwarfs and stuff, but there, there wasn't a Games Workshop near us. And to this day, I've still got a lot of affection for uh, Merry Hill Shopping Centre in Dudley, because mm-hmm. that was the closest Games Workshop. And I think my mum and dad must have said, like, okay, well, if you want to go, we'll drive you there in, like, three or four weeks. Yeah. And it felt like an eternity. I remember, I remember waiting and thinking, oh, I'm going to get to go to a games workshop and talk to one of these experts in a red It's probably one of these lot. I mean, yeah. <laughs> people I've spoken to this weekend, everyone works there at some point, I think, when I was growing up. Um, and then, um, so, yeah, we went in. And I remember the, the guy coming over to me in the games workshop and saying, um, so, what's cooler, swords or guns? Right. And I think, I, well, I said swords. And he was like, you want fantasy? And that was how I was assigned my, <laughs> my game. Yeah. And I kind of stand by it, but like, I've, I feel like I was perhaps robbed slightly of enjoying the 40K side of things because I felt like I was on a team then. Yes. And yeah. for a while I was like, I don't want to know about that 40K. I'm on team, team fantasy. Um, so yeah, it was, the, the fantasy stuff was sort of my first... Uh, you can imagine them uh, workshopping that, can't you? Out of games workshop. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Where, you know, bride or groom. Yeah, yeah. So what aspect of it, took, was it the gaming aspect of it, or did you collect the miniatures and uh, paint them? Well, I remember even when, thinking back to when I first, you know, at that show and tell day at my school, I remember he had some miniatures, but weirdly it was like the, it was almost the idea of it more than the actual practicalities of buying and painting miniatures and playing this game that was kind of, Clunky. Again, I've got a lot of affection for it, but it's kind of a clunky game, especially the older old edition that I was playing. And um, and yeah, I, we did used to paint very badly. We did used to play, but it was always more the idea of this world that exists that appealed to me. And so it seems like it'd be a natural fit to go into the RPG side of things. But it, it took me a few years to even discover that that side existed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's the the idea of this world that exists outside of everything else, and is kind of something you've got to buy magazine to learn about and the kind of slightly slightly esoteric secret nature of it was always quite that's uh, what the appeal tantalizing was. i think yeah yeah good and who were you playing with at this time so at the moment uh, a, a friend of mine who's still you know my best friend after these years um we used to play um in my cellar um, we had a very small cellar and my dad somehow ended up getting a pool table from a pub that was closing down <laughs> and be- bet- around the pool table if you imagine a pool table the walls of the cellar are about yeah. maybe a foot and a half bigger than the pool table. So you couldn't really actually play pool on it. So it, it, it became the, the Warhammer table. 
Um, yeah, we used, to, we used to play in the cellar. Um, but uh, we, did, we did used to play the, the, you know, the big Warhammer battles. But um, things like the Warhammer, Warhammer Quest, which was kind of the dungeon crawling board game, and the and Hero Quest, weirdly, even though that was kind of the simpler version, uh, those were the ones that sort of really we really got into at that stage. Yeah. So, so did you, have you ever deviated from fantasy, or have you kind of stuck with that? Yeah. So over the years, um, I did. I did eventually sort of dip into Warhammer 40k sort of after after I realised I don't need this guy in a red shirt to tell me <laughs> which game I can and can't play. Um, but especially things like Necromunda, the um, the skirmish game, um, and like Gorka Morka, those smaller games that were coming out that were a bit more focused. Uh, yeah, played a lot of them. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of really interesting room to explore that setting in little games like that. Yeah. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I got into those more as I got older. And then when I sort of hit my, at a certain point in the teenage development where you think, well, I should be, I should be cooler than this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to try and be cool for a bit. So you, you put all that stuff away. But the RPGs kind of took over then. I don't know if that is cooler than miniatures. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's easier to hide the miniatures. I mean, that's the thing. Uh, it's easier to hide a D20 than it is a, a giant Skaven army. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that was kind of when I sort of shifted then to, uh, to the RPG side of things. Yeah. And uh, in, in RPGs, um, so, so give us an idea of what kind of things you were playing. So, we, yeah, we tried to play Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay a few times, and it never really stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved reading the book, and I loved looking through it and looking at all these, uh, the backgrounds you could be and all the different critical hit tables and all this stuff that was like, made it feel like it was almost like a... Simulation is kind of a dirty word in RPGs, I think. Not so much a simulation in the sense that it's... Not in here, is Accurate. <laughs> but simulation in the sense that it feels like it's a real world that exists in this book, kind of separate to the players. Yeah. So if a critical hit happens and it's a really nasty one, it's because the book has deemed it so. Um, that always appealed to me. But then I, I found that was all just a, a little... Bit, it never quite stuck for me, the actual rules of one fancy roleplay. So I naturally being very thrifty, went online and looked for free RPGs. So for a while, I just played a lot of things that people were just making and sticking up on websites, um, sort of very things like Microlight 20 um, and lots of just free games that were on like someone's really bad 90s GeoCity website. I remember I would, I would read a lot of them and think, this is the, this is the real stuff that's happening. This is the real great game design. Right. Um, but then the one that stuck with me after a while was there's a game called uh, Searchers of the Unknown. Oh, I don't um, know. Which so, is a, so what was that? So it's a one-page Attempt. It's an attempt to make a one-page version of like, like either basic D&D or original D&D. Mm-hmm. And the conceit is that if a monster can be started out as uh, their move score, their AC, their damage, and their save score, I think, then what if the player characters were the same? So your player characters just get the same little stat block as a monster, and everything else fits on one page, and there's a very simple set of sort of conflict rules around it. And it, 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 on the page, it doesn't look like much, but then when I actually tried playing it, what happened was really fun because without, when you haven't got that much to work with on the paper, the players kind of get more creative. And I just remember things like we were like chopping down doors to like build bridges and we were setting up all sorts of traps for the monsters because you can't, there's not that much fun stuff you can do with your character, like just based on the paper. So you have to kind of really engage with the world. Yeah. And that was kind of what set off the spark for me of enjoying this kind of really stripped back approach where mm. you kind of put more of the focus on the world and creative things you can do in the world rather than having lots of rules. A games master 
prepares. Welcome to the Zoom of Role Playing Rambling. I've got Blighty with me. Hello, Blighty. Hello, Derek. It's unusual. This. this is a phone call we're doing, isn't it? We don't, we're not doing it in a normal way. We just yeah. thought we'd do this the morning after, the weekend before. Well, it's fresh in our minds. How does it feel waking up today and not having to go hunting for breakfast? Yeah, we did have there was a bit of a breakfast crisis in Manchester, wasn't there? Hunting for bread in one place. We we, we went and uh, didn't get breakfast until the man with the bread, the artisan bread, had arrived. That's the thing, isn't it? You know, in previous years, like up to a couple of years ago, what we did is we got hotel breakfast, didn't we? But we decided that Manchester, the hipster mm. centre of the northern quarter, is so full of places. Why don't we go there? And it, I think what's happened is Manchester's got back on its feet, hasn't it, after a, a year of hospitality being under the cosh. And it was busy. And we, we just found it really hard to get somewhere to have a breakfast. Well, we did, the, we did that classic thing that last time, as you say, we stayed in a hotel and it was one of those dreadful buffy breakfasts. So the first the first morning, we queued up for the dreadful buffy breakfast and thought, this is dreadful. And the following morning, we thought, let's just go to Manchester. Went into Manchester and it was full of places that do nice breakfasts. And we thought, let's do this. This is fantastic. And it's almost like this year, everyone else had the same idea. I don't mean grog meat people. I just mean everybody else who's in a hotel in Manchester thought, these, these big buffy breakfast things in hotels are rubbish. Let's go and have a nice uh, artisan breakfast. <laughs> All yeah. had the same idea. Let's have something on a sourdough. Everything's avocado with it. Everything's got an avocado with it as well. It's, it, well, what they've got, they've, it's always got sourdough. It's always got an avocado on it somewhere. They always try and slip an avocado in. Uh, and it's also always got something that you're not quite sure what it is. <laughs> it's probably, it's usually like, Cheese, like that, that posh beans on toast thing, have something called Grand Mor- Morovia on. Grand Morovia. Morovia. It sounds like somewhere a vampire might live. Morovia. I didn't like to ask, what, what's that? It's, it was cheese. It was a bit of cheese. It must be a type of cheese. But, um, yeah, there's always something that describes what you get, and it'll mention sourdough, it'll mention avocado, and it will, it will mention other things that you do know, but it will also mention something that you, you don't know what it is. And you don't yeah. know whether so, to ask. You don't whether to ask or not. The thing with uh, sourdough is, you know, I'm 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 not sure where I stand on it because I feel like I like it, but it is hard work, isn't it? It feels like it, it you know it feels like you're having a good time, um, but it is hard work. You know, it's a bit you have to you have to work at it, don't you? Uh, it's true that toasted sourdough. You have to get hammer and chisel on it, don't you? Really? <laughs> This is nice, but God, God. It's a bit like Rollmaster or something like that. I don't know. Like, <laughs> you're working hard at it. It's probably better for you. It's probably better for you. Is it, is it better for you? I don't know. No, no, I'm assuming it's better for you because it's so popular, but that may not be the case. I don't know about these things. And the whole thing of Manchester coming back to life and being a bit busier. And I think it was the last Premiership match of before the uh, World Cup. So it was really busy, wasn't it, in Manchester on the Saturday. Uh, Everybody got dispersed. I think at one point we found ourselves drinking in a back street that a bouncer had said, I'll tell you where you can go. And he led us, didn't he, Dan? Because everywhere was full. It wasn't so much that they were full, was it? It was the fact that all the pubs that are normally kind of craft beer, and that's another another story, we won't get into that, but everywhere that, that's a kind of craft beer bar, places that we, we would go to on a, on a GABO, um, 
which are all right, suddenly become full uh, of younger people. And they all have a DJ on. They all have a DJ on, don't they? They all have, oh, yeah. Everywhere we went, had a DJ. It's dance music, banging out. But no one was dancing. And the only person who seemed to be enjoying themselves was the DJ. <laughs> yes. And whilst, and whilst as, as a bunch of people, people of a certain age, none of us, the grog meat, Grog Squad really liked. None of us liked it. But from Abs, I remember Abs dancing around. He's the only person dancing. <laughs> but that's another story. Um, but we don't we don't like it. But I'm not sure any of the younger people seem to like it because none of them were dancing. And it was just it was just like, what's this? The purpose of this? Why have you? I go in a nightclub, in a nightclub, and I offer a dance or whatever. Fair enough, you know. But what is the point of this DJ playing this dance music at? Absolutely, you know, turned up to 11. And even you can't even look around and go, it's a generational thing, old man, because all these young people are really with it. They didn't look with it, they looked annoyed by it as well. So it's just something that happens and you have to tolerate it. Yeah. Yeah, So we were escorted, weren't we, into this uh, back street area. So it was an exclusive club. And we realized that we were on top of a um, manhole cover for a sewer. And every so often, we get the waffle yes. effluent. And also, um, if it was a role-playing game, if a large bouncer in a tavern escorted you into a back street, you would never go, would you? You wouldn't go, would you? You'd think, oh, yeah, no. what's this about? This you can't, you know, you'd just kill everyone in the room, wouldn't you, before you'd be escorted well, into the back alley? But, well, well, it, well, it did look it did look like uh, an alleyway out of a comic strip, didn't it? Like somewhere where Bruce Wayne's uh, parents would get killed. It was like... <laughs> With <laughs> it did, fire, fire, fire ladders, and yeah, it did. Yeah. It did. They made it look like that kind of place. It wasn't naturally like that, but they made it. Yeah, it's a theme. It's a theme back alley, <laughs> like, like a film set. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we did like have a couple, of, like a couple of hobbits talking about right endlessly. TG Miles. Friday starts with the multi-table event. So we're going to do a bit of a games master prepares and talk about the games that we uh, did. So we probably need to set the scene for the multi-table event. Seven game masters, seven seven tables. The idea was that it was Mega City 1 during Block Mania. Players would be playing perps who were taking advantage of the judges being distracted by everything that was going on to commit crimes. And each games master had their own encounter that they devised and they rotated every half hour so that the players had six different encounters to enjoy. Um, seven tables. We only got, you only got six, didn't you? Because there were seven of us, but you, you only got six encounters didn't you? in the time we had to do them. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. So it, it's a it's a, a a unique experience, I'd say, um, doing that with everybody playing the same game. We used yeah. the mothership rules uh, because yeah. they were uh, nice and easy, and um, <laughs> they, they, they did they You've said that nice, the nice and easy. I might I might dispute that. Anyway, go on. Yeah, we'll, we'll come on to that in a moment. Um, so what was your encounter, by the way? My, my encounter. And it's pretty important to say as well, people, there was 10 points available for each encounter, wasn't there? So it was competitive that each block, each gang could win points on each encounter. 
And then they were all added up at the end, and there was a dice roll made, wasn't there, to decide? Yeah, to see who was the, who won the gang war, who was the best. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my encounter was uh, Stukey Glanders. So it was a rooftop Stukey Glanding farm where the uh, judges attacked to uh, stop the Stukey, uh, Stukey Glanders. Um, and the Stukes, for those who don't know, the Stukies are these passive aliens, aren't they, that the glands are har- harvested for um, rejuve- their rejuvenating properties to make people look eternally young. Um, and uh, they, they were Stukey Glanders, and basically they had to get their Stukies to safety to score points. Each Stukie had a point. Um, and also the judges had a new toxin called Stukie Stubber, that if they hit the Stukies with it, the Stukies became worthless. It neutralised their glandular powers and they became worthless. Apart from if they made a critical save, Stuky made a critical save, it became immune to Stuky Stubber. And then, a bit like, a bit like a, is it a golden snitch in Harry Potter? It then became worth 10 points in its own right. And that did happen, um, which was quite exciting because as soon as that happened, that Stukey became the be-all and end-all because it was 10 points on its own. So, so yeah, it was uh, it was good fun. What was yours? Go on. So mine, mine was Beyonging. So I, um, if you know 2008, you'll know that uh, the Miracle Plastic Boing uh, has been uh, invented where you can spray it and it becomes spherical, turning you into a human pinball. And it's illegal to use it outside the Palais de Boing. Uh, but these perps, for the duration of my table, had unlimited supply of Boing so that they could uh, jump from one block to the other. So it was Barry Elliott and Paul Elliott block. And they went to the top of one of them and bounced to the other and then bounced back again to me, to you. Because, of course, it's the Chuckle Brothers, isn't it? <laughs> And whereas the other games masters had come up with uh, one encounter, it meant that I came up with 10 different encounters. So depending where you bounced into, you could get a different encounter. The higher you got, the more points were available. And uh, if you wanted, you could use stress or spend stress to go a bit higher. I did it that way because I wanted, I thought I'd get bored doing the same thing over and over. So I did it for my own amusement so that there was a bit of variety. Well, we do these things for our own amusement anyway, don't we? Let's exactly, exactly. But it, it was quite hard up, hard work coming up with 10 encounters. Um, well, I think it was it, one, of those, one of those things, wasn't it, that um, it, it was all good. It's, a fr- it's the Grog Fringe, isn't it? So it's organised by uh, Neil, by Old Ghost, as a role playing isn't it um yeah it's it like a little fringe event and we all we all got together a few times to come up with our little encounters and i think it's possible we might all be guilty of coming up with an idea and then thinking yeah that that'll work that'll work and then putting it parking it somewhere for a few months until about maybe a month before grog meet and then thinking Oh, I'll need to get knuckle down and sort this out now. When you actually start sorting it out, thinking it's all right, okay. What if I, what if I said I'm doing here now? This is kind of yes. quite, I've made something quite complicated for myself. So my mine uh, in my head was quite straightforward, but I realised that the way it worked was almost like a board game, and I would need a battle map, and I would need meeples, and I would need lots of things that I don't normally do. 
So I had to kind yeah. of look at doing that. And I felt suddenly a bit out of my comfort zone because I thought, well, I don't normally do this kind of stuff, you know. And let's face it, there is also a little bit of a competitive element between because we've got all the different games masters. When when you see when you see somebody else use using a battle mat and coming up with some models and stands, you start thinking, all oh, right. That's yeah. where it's going, is it? Right. Okay. <laughs> I need something. Yeah, you do. You think I need something. <laughs> I mean, theatre of the mind's fine, but everyone else has got stuff. I need stuff. <laughs> because, because people will be judging me as I go around that mm. table and comparing. Yeah. Mm, well, we're yeah, all right. I mean, this guy, this guy had like Lego figures and he had some silly string and he had a, a map and he had meeples. But he had nothing. He had nothing. You know, theatre with him. And they ain't, it's a bit lazy, isn't it? Although I thought it was, I thought it was interesting. Um, it's an interesting exercise because it highlighted to me, uh, and I was talking to Steve, Steve Ray about this, Olanthi Vex, I talked to him about it, and he said the same, that it was exhausting because what he realised is when you run a game, there are peaks and troughs, as he he puts it, the peaks and troughs of energy as a games master. So there's bits where there's a fight and you go, right, I need to, you know, concentrate on what's happening and whose turn it is and all this kind of thing. And there's other bits of a scenario where there's players having a discussion for 10 minutes. And as a games master, you can sit back and go, oh, they, they're deciding what to do. That's fine. I can relax a bit. But with the grog fringe thing, because you move to a different table and you're running the same encounter, you were up top, top note all the time, weren't you? Yeah. It, it was like you had to do the bit, the bit I always hate about any game. You had to explain it. You had to sit down at a new table and they don't look at you and go, right, okay, I'm going to explain this very, very quickly. And of course, the players, players wanted it explained quickly because it was timed and there were points. So they didn't want too much explanation. Which was like, right, I've got through all the explanation. Okay, what are you going to do? And it's like, bang, 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 bang. And then that, the timer went and you go, right, uh, I've got to go, go to the next table. And right, here we go again. It's like starting a game from scratch almost, even though it was the same system. But your your encounter felt like starting a game from scratch. And you realise how that is quite, it's the most tiring bit of a game, that beginning bit of just getting everyone, drawing everyone into it and getting them on board. But then you had to do it six times. It was yeah. it was exhausting. Yeah. I think I think as we moved, we were all kind of bumping into each other and looking at each other going, I'm knackered. Oh. <laughs> yeah. What have we, we done, three? three? And I'm knackered, yeah. another three. Oh. <laughs> what have we done? What have we done to ourselves? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was, I thought it was It was interesting for no other reason that um, it demonstrates where your energy is in a game and you realise yeah. there's a lot of energy at the beginning of a game where you have to yeah. sit people down go, right, this is what this is all about, and get them into it. And you had to do that six times. That was quite exhausting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, as you say, setting out you know, where the points were, because that's what they were interested in. And mm -hmm. with some of my encounters, because I did multiple ones, because they boinged into a different level, um, some of the lower ones were designed to slow them down and distract them a bit. So, you know, one of them was a shopplex where there was a robot called Call Me Jamie. And um, he, he just, a bit of a waste of time, really. He had to make a, a meal, a monthly star meal, 
using mums um, for the uh, boss and they would uh, get some advantages. But it took a while before they could get some points. And part of the way mine was, was that they had to make a decision. Do we stay in this or do we boing out of here? So um, they soon got uh, to go to that. But just setting up the premise of uh, each of them, as you say, was uh, difficult. And I did make one um, error. It was it's good because the way that it was set up, I actually only had the same scene only cropped up a couple of times. But one of the scenes was using footsies, people who had future shock, and they were going into coot cubes, they'd escaped from the coot cubes, and they were running around. And I had some tables for their reaction whenever they were trying to be caught. Every time they were caught, they would get a point, put them into the coot cubes. Um, and one of them was um, uh, fired a silly string, and I'd made a can of boing, and it was actually a silly string, and fire it. And I managed to fire it into Arjun's mouth. Health and safety issue. It just blasted out. It, it was all over him, and it went pink as well. Um, fortunately, everybody signs a disclaimer before they. <laughs> Pretty nasty stuff, that silly string. Not so silly now, is it? <laughs> there you go. And we use Mothership, because on the face of it, as I said, it's quite simple, isn't it? And we had this idea that we would be consistent at our table, which is all very wrong. Well. Consistently wrong. Yeah. So I, I, I think, uh, yeah, we, we did agree that because there's a number of discussions about certain rules that didn't seem particularly clear um, in the rule book. And therefore, we, uh, yes, we, we had to say, I may do this differently from the other games master, but I am doing it differently on every, I'm doing it the same, wrong or different, but the same way. I'm doing it wrongly the same way on every table, if that makes sense. That's what we had to yeah. do, say, tell them, isn't it? It may differ, but don't worry. It, it will differ on every table that I run it on. So everyone's on the same footing, basically. You know. Yeah. But I'm not I'm not Which, a massive I'm not a massive man of mothership, as you as you know. <laughs> but it's um uh, but that that all works all very well, doesn't it? But the players they see the inconsistencies, don't they? And yeah, they do. <laughs> a lot of the time they were pointing out the inconsistencies. And it's because the rules are written in such a way that they it's all stripped down, isn't it? But yeah. there are one or two things that are open to interpretation. So even before the session, we all had slightly different take on what it actually meant. There's a, there's a good there's a good game trying to get out of there. Isn't there? It's a bit like you said, I think, in kind of another podcast earlier. It's one of those straight-back games that, in a way, possibly needs a little bit more in it just to clarify one or two things that, that may, you know, kind of think make sense. That's, yeah, that's, and I think... That's the problem with it, I think. Yeah. And the um, flow chart is deceptive because it seems like it should um, have a logic to it, but there's so many caveats built into that, that flow chart, it kind of renders it sort of useless in a way. And also there's like little rules buried away. What we've been doing is every so often we'd meet up, wouldn't we? Just explain what we were doing. Trying to get reassurance from each other that we were doing the right thing. You kept saying things like, well, you know, I'm going to give them extra bond points if they do uh, such and such. Resolve. And then, like it's resolve, wasn't it? I'm going to give them resolve. resolve yeah. Resolve points. And you said, what, what's that? What's that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, resolve points, where's that? And yeah. there's one line that mentions resolve. Yeah. It's something that you can add when you're rolling on a fear table. 
and it was like it's like first aid. There's a first aid skill, but I couldn't I couldn't find or work out what first aid even does. It's like critical critical hits as well. Some weapons have an effect on critical hits, and others don't. You think right? I thought does a critical do double damage, but then the effect critical effect of some of the weapons it says double damage. So you think do we? I know you, you know if you take a critical hit, you have to make a panic roll, don't you? But I thought so if it doesn't have any effect, does the weapon do nothing? extra on a critical apart from make do a panic roll i thought mm, i don't i don't know i wasn't, wasn't sure you know what i mean it's not yeah. that it's a bad game it's not a bad game it's not that i think sometimes just that perhaps it needs a few more words to describe and clarify it's one or two points that's how that's what i've kind of i find with it you know it has been kick-started that, hasn't it the second yeah. edition has been kick-started so. yeah which might maybe that'll might yeah, it might kind of give it perhaps that little bit that it needs extra, I think, to just clarify one or two things. But uh, yeah. but it did, it did work. It did work. You know, it did work. Yeah. You know? and, and in the essence, I suppose, it is it is simple. It is a simple enough system. And, and I suppose it is a system, you, to its credit, I suppose, you can play around with enough. There's enough uh, movement in it to play around with the rules and make, make your own as some of us did, our own little version of the rules for our encounter, I suppose. They'd have that going for it. It wasn't like one of those games where if you change one rule, everything falls apart. You know, it's, uh, you can you can do that with it. So it did, did work in the end. Yeah. I do think it probably, in the end, um, worked out that it was the best experience that we've done of those multi-table events. don't know how yeah. you feel. Yeah, you know, it, well, it, probably was, it. it probably was. It was the most exhausting, but it it, it did have a kind of <laughs> kind of make, crazy party atmosphere to it, didn't really? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Are you sure it's my round? So following that, it's uh, Grug Me Eve, and uh, I ran a game of Titan Effect, the Savage World setting that we covered in a, a couple of episodes ago and um, the one with uh, espionage and uh, low level super powers uh, in a world where there's a global eugenics conspiracy um, and it was taking the theme because we had a bit of a theme didn't we around uh, prog prog rock come over from the previous year we weren't wedded to it was it it was kind of more of a, a, a Frog flavour to some of the games that we were uh, running. And uh, I based this on uh, Palace's album, The Sentinel, which was one of our favourites back in the day, wasn't it? It was, it was, it was. I don't think I've listened to it since back in the day, to be honest with you. <laughs> but there you go. I would say that it's it's all right. It's yeah. all right. I think um, th- there were... The, the, this particular album was popular with us because they're a bit like Marillion, weren't they? They're like long synth, rumbling yeah. synth, uh, noodling synth sort of solos. They're probably a bit more poppy uh, than mm. Marillion, I'd say. Yeah, but, I don't yeah. think so. Yeah. Well, they only did yeah. the one album. one album. No, no, no. I, th- I think they're still going. I do. Okay. I think they're still going. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think... I think I think they've been in and out, but they yeah, they have got other albums. Um, their other albums probably are a little different to The Sentinel because mm. The Sentinel, on the face of it, appears like a concept album, 
but it isn't really. There's just some thematic elements that are consistent in the stories. So for this scenario, I really just took the cover art, which is uh, quite distinctive, and uh, some of the um, key lyrics and uh, built some ideas around that. I didn't get too... I was concerned when you do a theme like that, you can't really go into deep into the lore of the um, albums because people don't know it. it? It's diffi- that is one of the difficulties, and we might talk about this when I talk about what I ran during Grog Meet. Um, but but it, yeah, that that is one of the problems. But you, you, the danger is you can slip into is this clever? Is this is really clever? Um, but I'm referencing all the songs and the album and all the detail, but other people are either oblivious to it or, in a worst case scenario, confused. Confused because they're thinking, well, I don't really know this album. I don't know it. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. that, that, would be, that would be. That would be true of me if I'd if you'd gone too if I'd played that game and you'd gone too much into the song and the album and all the all the minutiae of the album, and I hadn't listened to the album again, I'd be confused even though I know the album, but I've not listened to it for years. So therefore, I'd just be as confused as anybody. You know, that's, that's the yeah. danger, isn't it, with that kind of thing? Yeah. So yeah, it's a new twist on the deep lore setting, isn't it? Like, forget about Glorantha. This is uh, Palace the Sentinel. Yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> There'll be people around the table. Oh, well, actually, I think you'll find that uh, Eyes in the Night is about returning after a gig. Uh, and yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, it, I, I, it was an infiltration and an elaborate seastead base. Mm-hmm. It was it was great fun, you know. It just it, it was like a Bond uh, film. Uh, and the whole thing was built around doing this assassination of John Doe, and um, they, they got into this elaborate um, base called named Atlantis, this, uh, seascape base. Um, but I used all the uh, bells and whistles of Savage Worlds, including the action cards and the yeah. the adventure cards, should I say, and uh, some quick encounters montaging their way through, you know, where they're killing the guards and not getting too hung up on the minutiae of battle by battle, uh, but getting to the finale. They, this horrendous figure, this criminal mastermind, when they faced him, you know what happened? Go on. They, they drew two jokers. <laughs> uh, did you shuffle some, the pack properly? I did shuffle the pack properly, <laughs> <Did> yeah. <you>? <laughs> <laughs> They drew two jo- jokers, and uh, Debbie had an adventure card that said that she could act as if she had a joker. So effectively, they had three jokers mm. on the table, which meant that they acted uh, first. And so they got a bead shot on his uh, head, hit him. The damage exploded, <laughs> and Mark pulled out of his back pocket an adventure card that said double damage. So he got hit with the first bullet they shot with 40 points of damage. So all my bennies were used up. That was the end of him. His head exploded like a watermelon. That's it then. (laughs) Yeah, there's a weird weird disconnection, I think, sometimes between the player's experience and yours as Games Master. Because, you see, if I was playing that game, I would have really enjoyed all that. Because as a player, you feel like you've got lucky You've done something, got lucky and done something tactical with your adventure card. 
so that you sort of win against the bad guy. As a games master, you, you have a different perspective where you think, I, I suppose it's almost like you sort of worry, have, oh, have they enjoyed it? Because they made such short work. Have they enjoyed that? Or was it not exciting? But I think from a player's perspective, it is exciting because they are still rolling dice and playing cards and doing all the things that they, they do. You know, the fact that it goes their way doesn't perhaps bother a player as much as, you know, because it happened to me in uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics at Expo where I was the wizard and there was this terrible monster at the end and I just decided to spend 15, I had 15 strength and a spell burn. I went down to one strength and put 14 points into it, rolled the dice, added 14 and just absolutely annihilated it with a, like a fireball spell that just completely wiped it out. But everyone enjoyed it and it was fun. With the games master thinking, oh, he's just killed, he's just killed me, boss monster. Only one go, yeah. but but I don't, I don't think players, the player perception is the same. I didn't leave that dungeon crawl classics game thinking, oh, well, that wasn't much of a monster. It, it wasn't, yeah. it doesn't feel like that as a player. But as a games master, oh. I think that can be the case, can't it? You can think, oh no, oh no, have I short changed them by them not having a big fight? But I don't oh. think players perceive it like that. Um, but fortunately. Um, I had a setup where you know it was down, but um, I had a device where he, he was experimenting with transhumanism. So he got into this. Uh, he was surrounded by these weird tanks and vats filled with strange creatures that he was developing. So he managed to get into one of those. But uh, so the final fight was with this uh, strange centaur creature. But to be fair, they made short work of uh, that as well. Uh, but. That's Savage Worlds for you, isn't it? That's Savage yeah, Worlds. That is Savage Worlds. Yeah. 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 So it was great. It was great fun. I, I expended a lot of energy on uh, the Friday. And when I came into um, Saturday, I played Star Frontiers in the morning and my voice was very croaky because the week before the con, last week, I had a really bad cold and I was just on the tail end of it. My voice was cracking in the morning. You you forget, don't you, what a, a physical activity it is. You need to be at top of your yeah. game, really, yeah. like an athlete. Yeah. Well, it's a lot of those people, isn't it, when you come back from a convention, you say, well, you're, you're, not, you're tired, you're knackered. Well, what have you been doing playing games? You go, yeah, you don't understand, though. It's going to take yeah. a lot of mental energy. It's like you say, physical energy to some extent. Yeah. Open box! And uh, so clearly you then got to the point where you thought, well, I could have a go at this. So, yeah, I, I did that start. Um, I think that started quite early on. Like I said, when I, when I realised, oh, well, there's, there's loads of people online that are just making free games and putting them out, so it's like a Word document. I thought, well, obviously, I'll just make my own. It's going to be great. Um, and, for yeah, that, they weren't great. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I like to revisit them occasionally to see, like, oh, was there any, like, secret stuff back there yeah. that I accidentally made that was really good? And there's not. Um, <laughs> but, there was, yeah, I, I, start, I remember starting to make one called Inheritance, which was kind of like a, a sort of ancient superheroes, like 300 meets X-Men type thing. Mm-hmm. And I remember trying to do one that was like an urban espionage thing. But I, I, I don't know whether this is a strength or a weakness, but every time I read something, I always find something I don't like. And that one little thing will bug me, even if I like 90% of the system. And, you know, you can get around that with house rules. But a part of me always thinks, well, I could just start from scratch and make... make you start with the house rules and then it kind of turns into, well, I'll just make my own little version of this mm-hmm. and then it'll grow and grow and grow. So I'm, I'm very good at starting these projects and mm-hmm. occasionally I finish them. Yeah. 
And uh, was Into the Odd the first one that you finished? Um, it was the first one that anyone seemed to enjoy. Right. <laughs> and part of that, I think, is initially I just told people it was my D&D hack, which yeah. is a good way to get people to try your game. Because yeah. if you say, oh, do you want to try this RPG I've designed? People are like, mm. but if you're like, oh, uh, do you want to play D&D tonight? They might be like, yeah. And it's like, oh, well, we're running my D&D hack. It's slightly different, but don't worry. Yeah. And then when they sat around the table, you can be like, so here's how it's different. And then you just explain the game. So I, I always wonder how far I could go with that and just explain it, sit down with Traveller or something and be like, yeah, we're playing this, my D&D hack. It's a completely different game. Um, so, so there'll be people uh, out there who don't know Into the Odd. Yes. I think there's people in this room who probably don't know what Into the Odd is. So, I suspect so. Yeah, so just uh, give us a pitch for how it works. So Into the Odd, so the way it started, I should say, uh, the Odd was kind of a slight little joke on OD&D. Uh, because I kind of originally thought, the original concept was, could I just make like a really simplified stripped-back version of OD&D? Kind of like what Surge of the Unknown was doing, but could I steal that idea for myself and uh, just make like my little version of it? And then it kind of grew out of that to become Into the Odd, which has some similarity still to D&D, so you'd recognise things like strength, dexterity, and, uh, well, willpower um, as your kind of stats, and you'd recognise things like HP, but... That's kind of all of the rules there is. It's, it's, it's my attempt to kind of strip back as much as I can mm-hmm. to have a very, very simple set of rules for doing that kind of low-level D&D stuff of going down into a dangerous place, mm-hmm. messing around with weird magic items like immovable rods and, you know, portable holes, all those great magic items that don't need rules because you almost just need the name because yeah. that's, that's like the pinnacle of design for me. <laughs> if, it, if, it, if it works just off the name, it's great. Um, so it's attempt to take all that and in a very simple set of rules and give it a kind of coat of a bit of a more your kind of industrial uh, rev- industrial revolution kind of era with a bit of horror, a bit of sci-fi uh, mixed in with all the fantasy stuff. Yeah, and one of the key things for me about it is that it, it's kind of self-generating, isn't it? So Yes. Yeah, uh, so just to explain how that works. Yeah, so it's kind of like the... I, I always like the idea that... I, I, I like the idea of prepping your game so that when you sit down, you've almost got everything planned out that the players might do, which is obviously impossible. Yeah. But at least you've got something planned out so that you're not just making stuff up at the table and it doesn't feel like arbitrary. Um, like the players ask you a question and you're just like, uh, yeah. Um, I always like the idea that this is kind of almost pre-written before the players sit down. But I also want, wanted to accept the reality of not everyone wants to sit down and write hundreds of pages. Mm-hmm. Um, so a good way around that, I always found, is random tables. So the back of the book is like a big chunk of random tables for generating sort of dungeon underground areas, generating the city of Bastion, where it's all kind of based around. Um, and yeah, just, just lots, of, lots of random tables allow you to get away with much less prep, uh, in my experience. So yeah, that, that's why that kind of, I hesitate to call it emergent content, that's, that's a good phrase, isn't it? Yeah, emergent yeah. content. Yeah, there's a lot of emergent content in this game, and I really uh, did that on purpose, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> excellent. And uh, I, I know I'm speaking to people about games that people have played and how people approach uh, pre-generated characters, for example. And there is a lot of fun at generating characters at the table, and yeah. Into the Odd seems to promote that kind well, of Well, that's kind of the, 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 the most fun that I ever had with Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, really, was just rolling characters. Yeah. Because that was almost more fun than the game because you'd, you'd roll these characters and you'd, you'd get you know good scores here, bad scores there, and you'd end up with a weird career. Um, so I wanted to have some of that feel in Into the Odd. Um, 
but also just a lot quicker. So you kind of roll your three stats down the line, 3d6 for each, which is quite swingy. So you do end up with people that just end up with a really duff character. But in my experience, that doesn't always necessarily mean it's... They don't necessarily always have a bad time. They often end up having a better time because the people that end up with the good scores are the ones that often end up being overconfident and uh, running ahead of the rest of the group, perhaps, or being the first to volunteer to go ahead. Um, and the the other slight little balancing thing in into the odd is the players who roll the lowest scores get slightly better starter package. So every player gets a little starter pack, which is three or four items. Um, and the worse you roll on your scores, the better stuff you get. Um, so you might end up with an Arcanum, which is kind of these strange magic items, or you might end up with a telepathic dog or a, a, a flamethrower. Whereas the people who roll very well might end up with a club and a pigeon. Maybe not a pigeon, not a pigeon's good equipment. Maybe, maybe just a club. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, that, that's, that, doing that at the table, I always find like that's a good way of just, if I've got like new, new players, just getting them to start with that is like a really good way to sort of get those, get them into the spirit of, what, of how the game's going to be because you have to immediately start thinking, well, who is this character? And it gets the, the juice, the creativity juices flowing uh, pretty quickly. Um, yeah. And we should say, as you said earlier, this, the arcana is just a, usually a single word or a couple of words, isn't it? To... Yeah, so it's, I always like these magic items, like I say, that are kind of like almost like plain speech. So you don't need to know about the system. So if you have a magic item that's like, oh, well, when you use this in a scene, you get a raise when you use your mm. excitement. Sometimes you read a magic item and you're like, this feels like it's part of the game. Whereas I like it to feel like something that you would see in a museum or on a, a weird old shop, like at the description underneath. It should kind of say what it does yes. in plain terms. So yeah, a lot of them will do things like, I, use, I always use the immovable rod as an example, because it's one of my favorites. It's like you, you hold out this rod. This is obviously a D&D one. Uh, you hold it out, press the button, and then it, it's immovable. And there are so many stories people have got about things they've done with that yeah. that have, you know, in, in air quotes, broken the game. Yeah. But I would say that's made the game. Yes. Because yeah, you've, got, you've got that story then. And I wanted to have a lot of things like that, yeah. So there's things like a... Um, well, there was, one of my favourites was I had one called a bone magnet, yeah. which is a magnet that attracts bones. Yes. Um, but there was a, an, an actual play on a podcast where they... Uh, they used it in a very creative way and it made a great story but they were basically using it to kind of snap necks um, and it, it became this is not necessarily what I had planned which it's, it's great and I'm glad it happened this once but I don't want this to happen every time so it is now the school magnet which I guess you could still but I've, I've tweaked the description slightly yeah. um, but now it's now a school magnet and um, I always had to add that it doesn't apply to cartilage because there was another one where there was a, a, a big cartilage giant that exists in yeah. uh, an adventure um, and yeah, I now have to specify that. So I, I, it, I, I love these kind of items that create those kind of stories and they almost kind of develop like a, uh, like a myth among people who've played the game in the same way that people who play D and D, everyone's got the story about the portable hole or the decanter of endless water or things like that. Yeah. And they are incredible. So how do you, how do you work through that? What's the, what's the process of like coming up with some of these things? Um, a part of it is just trying to think of things, things that would slightly break the game. So yeah. things that you wouldn't normally allow in a game. So that, so I should say, and there's, there's Into the Odd, and the Electric Bastion Land was kind of my follow-up to that. Um, and I had to write a lot more for that book because that was a much thicker book. And one of the processes that I did for coming up with lots of items for that book was to going, going on to like 
um, like Screwfix website. Yeah. And just looking through tools and things like that and be like, well, what would, what would be the weird fantasy equivalent of this, this specific tool that's like a, like, like a spirit level? So yeah. I think there's, I can't remember what it's called, but there's something that's like a spirit level. And obviously, the obvious way to go with it is that it kind of like, it's used to measure like someone's spirit. Or like it's used to check for ghosts or something. So there's lots of, it just turns into lots of things like that where if you look close enough, you can see. It's a screw. You can see the Screwfix website. Yeah. <laughs> Coming through. Excellent. Yes, let's uh, before we go on to Electric Bastion Land, let's stick with Into the Odd right. because um, I, just talk about the publication history of that. So, because uh, it, it kind of snowballed now and it's distributed by Free yeah. League. So, how did that come about? So, I started That's... writing it in 2011. And then, like I say, I was playing at the time, mostly playing kind of online games with, um, it was on Google Plus at the time. There was sort of a, a big community for playing games in Hangouts on Google Plus, which no longer exists. Um, and it, um, so from, from there and kind of tricking people into thinking they were playing D and it kind of picked up enough bit momentum that, um, uh, Paolo Greco from Lost Pages got in touch with me, who I knew, I knew anyway, sort of in, in sort of friendly terms online. Um, Paolo got in touch with me and said, like, is this something you'd be interested in publishing from, through Lost Pages, who are kind of a small press publisher? And, um, I said, yeah, that'd be great. So we, we did that. And I still remember, like, the day that, like, we released it, um, thinking, like, oh, well, I'll be really glad if we sell, like, a few copies. If we sell out, like, sell, if I can get into double figures in the first week, I felt like it wasn't a complete disaster. And um, it went to like double figures within the first like few hours, and then it it, it wasn't like a gigantic seller. But for for what I was expecting at the time, people seemed to really like it, and words seemed to be spreading uh, in quite a good way. Um, so from there, it, I was at the time I was you know working a full time job. So in my spare time, I started working on the, a follow up. I was thinking, well, what should I do? Should I do like a supplement or like a standalone thing? And I'll go more into Electric Bastion and uh, afterwards, but after about five years of kind of messing around with it, uh, Electric Bastion and was born, which was kind of the, the big hardback follow-up. Um, and that got a, a very good reception as well, but there were people who still said, you know, I, I like it, but I kind of miss the old Into the Odd being this very kind of slim little, mm. little self-contained book. And it had a slightly different tone as well. And one or two things were slightly different. And I thought, well, now will be a really good opportunity to do like the definitive version of Into the Odd mm-hmm. for people who still liked that original game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was already talking with Free League about some other things because I did a little bit of work for them. I did like a stretch goal for Forbidden Lands. I wrote a little dungeon for them. And when I was speaking with them about that, they mentioned that they like Into the Odd and I thought they were being kind of polite. <laughs> like, oh yeah, we love your work. And I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> and I thought, thought they were being polite, but then I, when I spoke to them again, um, um, that, that they mentioned, like, look, if you ever want to do a, a new edition, get in touch, and that's something we could talk about. Um, so I sort of reopened the communications after that, and we decided to do a remastered version. So rather than doing, like, another new edition, if you like, um, I wanted to just do, like, the definitive version and just tidy up some wordings and uh, add some extra stuff and more content without bloating it but leave the kind of rules and the core of the game kind of untouched to how it was. And, and the art direction in the new version is great. So. Yeah, so that was um, Johan Noor, who people might know from Mottborg and um, Cyborg, the, the new sort of one. Um, I, I'd already spoken with um, Johan, so I did, I did a podcast with him 
um, shortly after Mortborg won all of the Ennies of the year. This is the first, first year I was nominated for an Ennie, and I saw Mortborg was on there, and I'm like, I'm not going to win this, because Mortborg are going to win everything. And I think they did win everything that they were up for. Um, so I had a, we did a podcast with them afterwards, and, um, and I sort of made a joke, like, if, if, I ever stand, if I ever want to stand a chance of winning an Ennie, I'm going to have to work with yeah, Johan. Um, and then when, when this all came about, I thought, well, I would still like, I would like to have, I always like books where you've got all of the visuals are kind of like, they look like a unified idea, mm, like yeah. books that use a single artist, I always yes. think are really exciting. Um, so I spoke to you and I said, look, would you be happy to do everything? Like, I'll give you the text, um, but then layout, graphic design, art, everything. Uh, is that something you'd be interested in? And I thought he's going to be far too busy with other jobs. Um, and he was very busy, but he was able to sort of shuffle some things around um, and we managed to just squeeze him in. So, uh, so yeah, he, he did the artwork for, for Intiard Remastered and we didn't want it to look like Mortbook. That was like the first thing we both said. I was like, look, I really like Mortbook yeah. <laughs> and I really like the way it looks, but that's not how I want Intiard to look. Like, that's not the right look for this game. Mm. Um, so we tried to get a balance of the text and the presentation of the text being almost quite straightforward and not quite plain, but very not mortbook with like a million different typefaces and like big pink letters. Like I wanted this kind of look like a book, like a real book you might find in a secondhand shop. Um, and to go with that, we thought, well, what if we used a load of old public domain artwork, Mm -hmm. um, and kind of chewed it up and made it look weird. Mm-hmm. and gave it like weird colour filters and like made weird collages out of it mm-hmm. so that it almost looked like like when you find that old weird secondhand book and you almost can't work out what it is and it's just got like diagrams and like photographs that look really strange uh, we wanted to kind of capture that kind of feel um, so yeah that, that's what he did and I think yeah. it came out pretty good it's fantastic and um, Electric Bastion Land has a different <gasps> feel but very again very distinctive feel yeah so um Let's just talk about uh, that. So how does this differ from uh, Into the Odd? So I wanted Electric Bastion and originally it was just going to be a supplement for Into the Odd. So it was going to be a load of extra character backgrounds, information about the world, guidance for running the game. But because the rules for Into the Odd kind of fit on one page, I thought, well, it'd be really, really cruel to not just include the rules in the book. Because it's like, for the, for the sake of one page, I might as well just put the rules at the front. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, but when you do that, you're, it's almost like you're creating another game because now it becomes a self-contained thing. So I thought, I don't want this to be the replacement for Into the Odd. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to be like a different take on Into the Odd. And even after, so it's been out for five years now, I think. I still haven't quite worked out how to describe it. But it, it, is, it is like, it's, it's, it's um, a word that people use in like films is like a sidequel. Is that yeah. like, like yeah. It's, not, it's not a sequel. Um, it's like a different take on it. So that the main differences are, A, it's a much bigger book, mm-hmm. which might sound um, like a strange thing to, to fixate on, but some people do really like that small format book of Into the Odd. Um, but it moves the world forward. So Into the Odd is very industrial mm-hmm. and kind of um, sort of 18th century-ish. Um, but in my home games, I found I was using more stuff from kind of like more modern feeling stuff. Yeah. So Electric Bastionland is kind of set more in the electric age. Um, I spoke about those little starter packages that are in Into the Odd, where you get three items. I wanted to sort of explode those out to being more like the character backgrounds in Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, mm-hmm. where you have things like the rat catcher. That, the fact that these rat catchers are 
significant people in this world um, tells you something about that world. I wanted to use that kind of idea so there are 100 failed careers that your character can have. Um, and my, my nod to the rat catcher is the squid bagger. <laughs> so they have a, um, a squid catching pole and um, some variant on the small but vicious dog. They can have like a, I think there's like a large, a large relaxed seagull. <laughs> it's, it's always like two words and then an animal. Um, so yeah, I did a hundred of them. Um, and uh, I, I sort of picked up a lot of kind of advice that I wanted to put in there for how to run a game like Into the Odd. So all that stuff is in there as well in the kind of the GM's guide section. So in spite of the fact that it's a big, you know, 330 odd page hardback book, um, I like to think it's got the largest stuff to rules ratio of any self-contained game because the rules are still, you know, one, two pages. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a different take on it and, it, and the tone is slightly more, the tone is slightly more lighthearted, but it's mm. kind of like lighthearted in still that kind of black humour kind of way, uh, whereas Into the Odd is a little bit more played straight. Yeah, yeah, that's what I found when I played uh, Electric Pasty and like that. It's very Gilliam-esque, isn't it? It's that mm. kind of... Uh, yeah, and almost like sort of the um, Ag More Pork, things like that were a big influence. Yeah. And that kind of... I mean, you see, I keep going back to Warhammer, but you, you see the kind of... You see the, the, that tension in all of the Warhammer settings between the kind of... The comedy elements that were more prevalent kind of in the early editions are always slightly tense with the very serious elements of the setting. Yeah. Um, so this is my, I kind of had a similar thing with that in Into the Odd, whereas Electric Bastion is by no means a, a comedy game, but I wanted to allow the, um, the slightly more light-hearted things to, to shine through a little bit yeah. in this one. And it must be very rewarding to see um, it's influenced other games as well, isn't it? So some people have taken the mm. mechanics of Into the Odd. And yeah, definitely. And, and that's, I think, because, you know, I, pretty much every game I've ever written has started as me looking at someone else's game and thinking, oh, I, I, here's what I'd change about that. Yeah. So it, it's like the natural cycle now that other people are taking this and uh, doing something with it. But no, it, it's, it's always really interesting to see what people come up with as well. Um, and it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very rewarding to see. And so what are your plans uh, going forward? Because... Yeah, you know, are you still planning supplements for this, or what, what's your what's your? So my, my my place with supplements is, I'm I'm not very good at writing supplements. I think is what I've discovered over the last yeah. uh, few years. I think I, I I enjoy writing sort of supplemental material on my blog and uh, you know sharing that around. But in terms of like writing a supplement book, it doesn't really appeal to me because I kind of want each book to be like its own self contained thing. Yeah. So that you don't really need to buy anything else. Um, the book kind of gives you what you need. So I'm. I'm definitely planning on doing something else in Bastionland, um, but the thing that I'm planning next would be like a self-contained thing that perhaps sits alongside it. Um, yeah. But it is also, another side pull. Yeah, another another side pull to use that horrible word. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, something that you could kind of you could put them alongside each other and share ideas. But if you just pick up one book because that's the one you like the look of, you've kind of also got everything you need. Uh, in there as well yeah so <laughs> the, you, you talked about uh, emerging content so w you, does that discourage you from producing like scenario ideas and scenario hooks well like that? I, I think that the boring answer is I just feel like I'm not I, I have written sort of scenarios and adventure sites for for Into the Odd Electric Bastion but I tend to just put them out as like a pay what you want PDF yeah because it's kind of like, like if I'm planning a game at home my notes are just an absolute mess and they're just very 
brief. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I don't want to just put out those notes because that's kind of nonsense to anyone else. But I kind of want to. I kind of want to be realistic about it. And the, the, when, I, when I've tidied them up enough that someone else could probably understand them, they're still not necessarily something that I feel would work as a book. Uh, so I tend to just put them out as they are. It's really hard as well, isn't it? It's really hard. I think write, writing an adventure for someone else to use is a completely different skill to like prepping an adventure yeah. for yourself. And I feel like I can prep decent games to run at home. Um, but the idea of writing for someone else to run is kind of a, it's a very different skill. And, you know, Into the Odd does have an adventure at the back. But even that is... Uh, presented in a very kind of broad strokes way and um, it's it's written in a way that it's almost like more like the sparks to get the game going rather than a sort of completely um, rather than a completely kind of comprehensive here's everything you need it, it still relies on the fact that the GM is going to be making some stuff up at the table rolling on random tables and things like that yeah I look forward to seeing what you what you come up with. I'm going to ask uh, people in the audience if they've got a question for uh, Chris. Reading uh, the letter of Bastion, I wonder if you've ever read uh, Aegon in Viraconia. It has that same kind of urban oddness to it. Um, I've not read that one. I, I recognise the title. That's about as far as I get with that. But a lot of people, um, whenever I've read like some reviews of Electric Bastion, people say, well, this is clearly inspired by... Mm. Um, I, I was drinking uh, Perdido Street Station is that yeah, that's uh, yeah, China yeah China Melville and um, the other one is the film Brazil um, and the, all these references were coming up and I was like embarrassed I was like I've not actually read that <laughs> people think this is a reference to it so I recently watched Brazil for the first time the film and I was like this is exactly like how I was picturing it but I've never seen this film so I think what's happened is I've absorbed a lot of stuff second hand Mm. Um, because I'm, I'm very bad at finishing novels. Like I've, I will start a lot of novels reading, but I'm, I'm really bad at finishing them. So, um, so yeah, I think a lot of those uh, influences are kind of picked up secondhand uh, through other things, and it's all it's all just a kind of mess by the time it's made its way into my head. Good. Uh, one of the things I think that's really distinctive uh, about Electric Bastion Land is how integral the art is. Mm. To, to, to the game as a whole, and you know, to really give you like the flavour of, of like last year. Was that conceived from the outset, or did that kind of evolve as you were sort of developing it? Yeah. So the so the art in Electro Bastion was by Alex Sorensen, um, and he did all of the artwork. I think yes, all of the artwork. Every single piece was by him, and um, because there was a bit of interesting development in the production of the book. Uh, the way it worked is the book, and the book was pretty much entirely written before Alec came on. Um, and so I was able to send him the, the finished text. And, and it, I always wanted it to have like a unified vision of like this is one person's artwork all the way through it. Um, but it was really fascinating seeing the pieces come in because there's, so you know, there's about 200 pieces of art, I think, in the book. And for the first few that came in, I'd be like, yeah, this is great, but, you know, feel free to do more of this if you want or more of this. And then he'd keep getting a little bit more wild with it uh, as, the, as the pieces would come in. And it's really interesting. You can almost see on some of them, oh, this, this was obviously a piece that came in quite early because it's a little bit safer and a little bit more um, typical fantasy almost. And then if you see one that's got something really weird and strange in it, that's probably one that was later in development. So he, it, it was interesting because he was kind of discovering and working out the world as the pieces came in. Uh, and that's what I really like because it's... It's not just my vision of this world, it's, it's, it's his as well as much as mine. Thank you. Anybody else got a question? So what's on the, what's your RPG bookshelf? I have on 
I was I was joking about this recently. Um, so I, I picked up some secondhand old books from some old bloke this week. Um, <laughs> um, and um, what's happening is I'm finding that like I'm buying a lot more old books and uh, and and selling more of my newer books to make space for them because I have quite a limited shelf space in my little office uh, at home. And um, at, yeah. At, at the moment, things that things that are on my my shelf that I'm actually reading at the moment. Um, funnily enough, I'm not just saying this. I genuinely pick up the Prince Valiant storytelling game this weekend uh, secondhand, and games like that that are very simple. I haven't read it yet, but I've I've, I've skimmed through it and I I know of it. Um, think I'm always interested in games like that that are trying to present that they're really trying to appeal to new people to the hobby, mm-hmm. even if you know that sort of. <laughs> veteran players are going to be playing as well I'm always interested in how these games present themselves if they're anticipating getting new people so I've got, I've got that one I've got I, I, I recently picked up I went to Warhammer World and picked up a reprint of the original Rogue Trader which I've not read yet um, that was like something I've been meaning to pick up for a long time reading through that has been really interesting recently um, and what else is on my uh, pile at the moment um, I'll get there <laughs> this is being edited, right? Yeah, it will be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, a classic traveller is another one that I I picked up a couple of years, no, maybe last year, and I'm very interested in classic traveller and a lot of the sort of philosophy behind that. But like with everything, I I love a lot of the ideas and the philosophy behind it, and there's certain bits about it that really annoy me in, in, in how it's written. Um, but I think that's a sign of that's a sign of something that's going to stick with me. If it annoys me, there's something there. Yeah. It, it's better that than you just completely forget what you're looking at. Good. What would be the music playlist or soundtrack for Bastion Land or Into the Odds? That's pressure now. <laughs> um, so I always... I, I wrote um, Into the Odd around the same time that I moved to Manchester. Um, and... I th- I'm not sure how much coincidence it is that I started to move it to sort of this industrial setting around the same time that I moved to like the industrial city, I guess. Um, so I, even though it makes for quite a bleak soundtrack, I feel like Joy Division, some bits of Joy Division would fit mm-hmm. with the kind of uh, the sort of clanking industrial urban feel of parts of the setting. Um, for Electric Bastion Land, I've heard a lot of people say that they like using... Um, there's a group called Postmodern Jukebox who make kind of 1920s covers of sort of modern pop songs from like 80s through to now Um, and that kind of like the idea of it being the past but it's like twisted um, I think fits quite nicely with Electric Bastion and in the kind of hot jazz feel of some some parts of it Okay, room for one more Um, Your creative process is it you get an idea and then create the world or I think I, I don't often have the sense of like, well, I, I think I, I always start with kind of the, the nugget of like a vague idea of a setting, like, oh, I quite fancy writing a bit of a sci-fi game. Very vague. But then I, I like the, the, the settings that I really like feel like they kind of emerge alongside the rules of the game and alongside the needs of the game. So the setting for Into the Odd and Electra Bastioland, you know, kind of being the same setting, that setting grew out of what I actually needed at the table. So originally I had this whole thing where I was like, oh yeah, there's all these different re- regions of the world. 
but I sort of realized when I was playing, like that kind of only needs to be one city because either you're in the city or you're not. And if you make the city, that has some quite interesting connotations because now all these ideas you had for different cities, like I originally had one where I was like, this is a city that's got lots of vaults with weird stuff in it. And this is a city that was, there's been lots of alien interference in this city. And this, this one over here has lots of old decaying nobility. And this one over here has lots of industry, which is fine. But if you smash them all together, then that becomes a very interesting city uh, with lots of possibilities. Um, so yeah, I, I like I like the settings that kind of grow out of the um, out of the needs of the game. Um, not even so much the mechanics. I think that can be part of it, but just like what the game actually needs in terms of what does an adventure look like in this world, and what what needs to exist to facilitate that kind of adventure. Thank you. Thank you for really good questions from the Grog Squad. And really good answers, uh, Chris, really good full answers. <laughs> and the best I can say is that I'm really inspired to go away and play. And uh, oh, fantastic. I really want to go away and play it. So can we uh, thank Chris in the usual way? Thank you. The Games Master continues to prepare. So with them... Um, uh, the staff on Tears game, I was playing Bugs in the System. I don't think I'm going to go too much into this because we're going to do a future episode on uh, Star yeah. Frontiers. Yeah. But I'm just going to make the point that um, it's the first time, I believe, that I put a plan, a full plan in front of people for them to explore this space station. Essentially, it was a dungeon in space. I forgot you put a plan on the table and they explore it. Any convention, you've not got time for that, have you? The map your enemy and all that, all that, and yeah. Uh, yeah, that the is the problem. With, yeah, that is the problem with, and I've I've been caught out with that one uh, a little bit when I did the um, Isle of Dread thing, uh, virtual grog meet. You know where uh, there was a map and there was a dungeon, and it worked. It worked in the end. It worked in the end, but I always, it worked because they took the right route. And I, I always remember that game thinking, if they'd gone the other way, we, we'd never finished it in time. Because how do I, yeah. once you've got a plan down, how can I eliminate a room for the sake of time? Yeah. I can't eliminate a room because it's there. There, isn't it? I mean, yeah, even in roll, roll 20, there's a black space where there is a room or a series of rooms, and you know there's something there. So what, what can I do? I can't do anything, can I? You're going to have to go yeah. with it. Yeah. 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 It does trap you a bit. Yeah, the convention. Yeah. Map. Yeah. Yeah. So I ended up, uh, because they only ended up going down a corridor and going into the first room, <laughs> uh, I ended up uh, the good old faithful uh, 13 days montage to get them to the place where they needed to be. So that could... Uh, Although there is, a, there, is, there is a plus side. There is a plus side to maps as well, I think. Sometimes in the, when you put a map down and you have tokens and things, it, it can also sort of be a little bit more relaxing for a games master because it's there in front of the players. So it's there in front of them, isn't it, what what they're dealing with in a way. Yes. Whereas sometimes the old theatre of the mind, you know, going back to what you were saying earlier about the energy it takes, I think in some ways theatre of the mind requires more energy. Yeah. Because you're constantly keeping things in your head about where so all right so we're in this room and what is there? there's this there's that okay right then they'll have discussions some will go so hang on how many doors there's there's two are there two doors there's two doors right okay oh sorry i thought it was one. Oh, i thought there's three you get all that going on whereas at least with a map although you're right it does trap you in terms of time at least 
you look at it and go, well, that's what you've got. There, there it is. That's in front of you. That's that's what there is. Yeah, that's where the altar yeah. is. That's where the door is. That's where the well is. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so it can be a, it can be a slightly more relaxing experience sometimes. I think from a games master's point of view, when you have got a bit of a map. But I agree with the convention. It, it does. Yeah, you need to get trapped. <laughs> yeah, it, you can't let the the ending has to find them. They need to get to a conclusion. Um, so yeah. I relied on that montage. I think it worked well. It worked well because they got into the characters. I think that's why it, it took so long because they enjoyed playing the Dralocytes and uh, yeah. the Yossarians and really got into the uh, the, the fun of uh, Star Frontiers. Yeah. That was good. At the same time, you were running uh, Vason? Well, I played I, I played Vason on Friday night. Grog me Eve, I played Vason and I ran it on, in on the morning of Grogme. Um and it is one of my favourite games. It's uh, I think it's it's really really good game. Uh, I, I think I've said before. Um, and it was nice to play it because I've never played it before. Uh, well, Neil Neil Hopkins ran ran it. Bermot um, Satsuma, I think, on Twitter. Um, he ran one of the seasons of mystery stories. Um, so I won't I won't I won't say too much about it in terms of plot. Because um, again, it's like spoilers thing. Because I know, I know everyone in the in the whole world backed the Mythic Britain <laughs> Kickstarter, didn't they? You know, every, everyone's got a copy of that. I'm, I fully expect to see the politicians, world leaders, uh, experts, academics, all manner of people. I expect to see Mythic Britain Kickstarter book on the bookshelf when they're on Zoom calls to the news. I expect it to be there because clearly everyone in the world backed it, didn't they? You know, leaving you with the problem. Who can I run this for? Because everyone's got it. <laughs> Everybody read it. <laughs> if ever there's a case for Prime Directive, that is it, isn't it? But anyway, yeah. he ran one of the Seasons of Mystery uh, Adventures, which I, I have got, but I haven't hadn't read um, deliberately, really, just in case anyone offered to run one. So um, I hadn't, hadn't read it. Um, and that that is it, a very atmospheric scenario where you go off to, you, you're sent off to a, invited to go to a party in Russia. So you end up on a coach trip across the Russian winter, across the Russian countryside, and you get caught in a blizzard. And uh, you, do, you don't really get to the party. That's not a spoiler. You don't get to the party. That's a bit of a conceit. But you end up trapped in a Russian tavern in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by the snow. So there's no escape. You're stuck there with some strange characters. Um, and it is, it is an incredibly atmospheric game. There's just something about, I suppose, that... That period of history, um, that late Victorian period of history where people are modern enough, you're modern enough to be modern people, but it's not the modern world and it still has a sort of sense that it's in the past and it has an atmosphere and all that kind of supernatural stuff that's in Vason, you know, ghost stories and uh, fairy folk and all those things sort of connect with that Um so that that I really enjoyed, I really enjoyed that, and I won't I won't go into the plot because it's quite a clever plot. The plot is quite clever, so it's one of those. As a lot of Vason scenarios are, where what you think's going on is not what's going on, and what you think might be the threat isn't really the threat. The threat is actually something completely different that's going to surprise. Yeah, you. but I enjoyed yeah. that, and there's something about that Year Zero set of games. So Tales from the Loop really works well on that front, doesn't it, of having unexpected plot twists or unexpected 
avenues that you find yourself going down, it really lends itself to that, doesn't it? And I think it's cleverly the way that the game's constructed that allows that. Yeah, you wonder whether like the city, it's the system. Yeah, the system itself is is very. I mean, Vesen is uh, at the easier end of free league. It's probably a little bit more complicated than Tales from the Loop, but not much more complicated. And uh, I think, yeah, I think that does help. Actually, it does help in terms of playing it and running it because it is very, very simple, and it's very easy to. For players to improvise and come up with ideas, and for you as a gamers master to deal with those ideas, really, that, that simple dice pool mechanic is, yeah, it does, it does work. It's almost like a game, and I mean, the, the people who played my game on Saturday uh, may differ, but I think it's a game where, as a games master, and even as a player, you can't really fail to enjoy it. it. It's one of those kind of safety net games as a games master where you think it'd be all right this because people like it. People get into it. Something about the characters, you know, the the whole setting and the, the archetypes that it uses, the whole thing. Somehow, even if the even if the scenario was mediocre, never mind was. But you know, even though you feel you know, if I put something together that's mediocre and it's not as good as I think it is or whatever, people will enjoy it because the setting, the characters, the whole shtick with the game. You know, and the simplicity of it as well. So you've never played it before. People pick up on it very quickly and work out what they've got to do. You know, it's not that difficult. All those factors mean you can't really fail with a game like that, can you? Um, so yeah, on the Saturday morning, I ran my Squonk. Squonk, based on the Genesis song, Squonk. Um, Basin game. But I say based on Squonk. There was a Squonk in it. And the Squonk was, at the, it was the trigger for the problem that the village had. Um, which was that the, the fairy king in the forest had cursed the town because a hunter tried to catch the precious squonk. So the people in the town couldn't stop crying. That, that And they called the society in to try and help. It was one of those adventures that involved uh, trying to do a bargain with the fairy king. Um, and again, I, I, won't put, I won't say too much because I may run it again, but there was kind of a, a bit of a trick in there where the fairy king wanted something but there was a way of tricking him by fulfilling the bargain, but doing it in a, a tricksy way. And it was interesting because the players were divided about whether they felt they could trick him or whether they had to go through with his horrible demands. Uh, and that was, uh, so that was uh, entertaining. And uh, again, players, players kind of engaged with it. And, uh, it, was, it was really good. Um, in the afternoon, I uh, was covering for a late uh, running, running my this is counting now. This is my fourth game that I'm running. Here now. <laughs> oh, are you keeping up here? Um, <laughs> my fourth game because we had a dropout at the last minute, so uh, I covered it. But in the end, because of the number of dropouts that had taken place over um, the weekend due to um, this cold, I think people getting the cold, and um, yeah, uh, amongst other things. Um, I ended up with only two players, and it was uh, OSE that I played, and I did uh, Troubles at Embertrees, the yeah. scenario from White Dwarf 34. And uh, we've talked about Troubles from Embertrees before, an investigative uh, game, one of the, probably the first investigative uh, D&D White Dwarf games, to, to be fair, um, that involves the players uh, 
investigating the uh, poisoning of the employer. It's quite complicated, the actual plot and setup of uh, Troubled Entry. So I did some judicious editing of it. Um, there is a dungeon in it, but different from the Star Frontiers dungeon, I was just editing it on the fly um, just to fit it, just so that they went to the key areas. It's yeah. written in a uh, particularly uh, white dwarf from the early 80s way in that the resolution to the story, to the actual problem, you have to read through the adventure. I think we've said this before. Those things were, even as a games master, you're having to piece it together because of the way that it's, they've not told you what's actually going on. You have to read every single room entry to find it. All ah, right, so that's what he's, that's where he is and that's what he's doing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I had to, I, I cut it, I, cut, I simplified it uh, to fit into the time that we had. Because really, the old, of them. The old tradition from the 80s, the old tradition from the 80s, of not telling you what's going on, like you say, just yes. embedding it, embedding it in the adventure. You realise that's why some of those old adventures were so confusing when you were a kid, because you read them and thought, "I'm probably confusing now," because you read them and thought, "What's really going on here?" I said, "Like, yeah. you know, as, a, as a games master, I've got to work out what's going on as well." Have as part yes. of the challenge, I've got to work out what's going on before I run yeah. the damn thing. Yeah, can you just give me like a summary chapter, like they do nowadays? A summary of right, this is what's going on. And they all right, all fall into place. No, it's, it's true that. And I remember back in the day reading old White Dwarf scenarios and things and thinking, what's going on here? What's this all yeah. about? I don't know what it's about. But you said they, they embedded it in the, in the, in, in, in the scenario. <laughs> don't, don't explain it to me. I had a really good time playing it because OSE, is, it's delightful to play, isn't it? Because it's so straightforward and... Yeah. Uh, Easy to pick up. It's basic DD, isn't it? Uh, and it it's so infused with uh, nostalgia. We did it at a nice, gentle pace. Because you know me, I'm usually poor going around the bloody room, acting out what's going on. And I also that I think with something like OSE, particularly OSE, that the it's the expectations that are laid down ahead of the game almost. So some games. Um, people don't quite know what to expect. For an example, Call of Cthulhu, very popular game, but can take all sorts of forms. So you know what Call of Cthulhu is, but if you sign up to a con game, it could be it could be all manner of things, couldn't it? It could be a subtle investigation, it could be a cosmic horror, it could be this, that and the other, you know. So but all I see is the good thing about it is it is what it is in as much as people know what to expect. And in fact, sign up probably expecting expecting yeah. They expect yeah. what it gives. They they expect. We get, I would if I signed up for an old, old school essentials game. I'd think right. I will be possibly in a dungeon. I'll be fighting some monsters. I'd be very surprised, be astonished if I played an OSE game where I didn't fight some monsters because that's yeah. what it is, you know. And, and, and that that's is a games master again. It's a, it's almost like a no fail game because everyone around the table knows what they're getting and you know what to give them. And that's and, that. and they know. And they know that at no point am I going to turn around and say, okay, tell me what's in this room. Uh, you know, <laughs> event. Okay, yeah. what, what, what are your experience? What, what, does this, uh, what does this thing look like? Um, and 
you know, I, I get a lot of fun out of those games as well. You know, doing a bit of that with uh, Titan Effect on the uh, Friday night. But it's a different experience, isn't it? Oh, I see. It's it. There's a there's a pleasure in just doing that quite simple yeah. thing of resolving a fight. I'm just thinking now that all skill potentially getting played in a modern narrative way, where you know you say, okay, you're you're the fighter, you're the fighter, um, you're second level. You've killed a lot of people. How do you feel about that? Yes. <laughs> what's, yeah. what's the story? I mean, why did you become a fighter? Why, why not a cleric? <laughs> you want to t- maybe share with the group, what's your, what's your character's background? What are their motivations? What what really made yeah. you, you become a, a fighter? Why, why did you but, use a battle axe and not a longsword? But it's no, it's no less inventive. <laughs> it's no less inventive because the players are vulnerable because they've only got a, a few hit points. So yeah. they have to come up with some really good ideas of using yeah. the resources they've got. And the way that they resolve this return of this long-dead evil alchemist who was starting to emerge is to actually um, uh, stick a, a ring on his petrified hand that was in another room and uh, convert him to a frog god uh, because <laughs> they had this ring. And... What a great end, you know, he's yeah. coming to declare evil and he ended up um, ribbiting in the... <laughs> so it's it, it's no less inventive than those kind of narrative and well, story would, games in its way. I would say, I would say it in some respects, and I, I think I said this when we did the Incandescent Grottoes, All School Essentials, we did that, didn't we, on, online with our Sunday group. I think it is... Possibly, and, and it, it, people don't quite see this, but I think it's possibly the most inventive form of role play. And it's also the purest form of, of agency. In, yes. in, those, in those, when we did Old School Essentials, did the incandescent grottoes, what was fascinating was you were put down a dungeon, and it was a pre written dungeon, and it was all laid out, and I knew what was behind all the doors, I knew what everything was. Some of those things even didn't make sense to me because they were a bit random. You know, there's a lever you can pull or not pull. Here's a door you can open or not open. You know, you open a door, there's, yeah. a, there's a trapped, someone trapped behind a monster trapped who pleads with you. You can let him out, you can talk to him, you can shut the door, nail the door up and do what you want. You have this kind of pure, there is a pure agency to a dungeon in a weird way. Because although you're trapped in a dungeon, you can go left or right. You can open this door and open that door and not deal with that. Whereas sometimes in other role-playing games, it's not quite like that, is it? You know, you get a feeling of, ah, we've, we've got to go and deal with that. But yeah, this is where the story's going. We've got to go and deal with that particular thing. Whereas yeah. in the dungeon, sometimes those random dungeons, you don't have to deal with things you don't want to deal with. And you can deal with things in a particular way. And as you said, the other flip side to it, the, not flip side, but the other element to it is because you're vulnerable, you are more creative as a player. And we've said this about like fifth edition, haven't we? Fifth edition, one of the criticisms of it is you have so many powers that all you do is just game it with your powers. You don't you don't have to think inventively particularly. You can just go, ah right, I tell you what, I'm gonna get two attacks per round against this guy, I'm gonna do this, I've got an ability that can do that, blah, blah, blah. Whereas in those strip back games, you haven't got as many abilities. So you have to think on your feet and think. Can't really beat yeah. this guy in a straight fight. What are we going to do? You know, we've got a trick yeah. somewhere. You know, yeah. and that's that is in a way is a purity to it actually. 
that you you lose sight of. You know, my heart rate didn't increase at any point uh, during that session, but it was pleasurable. Yeah. And then before we move on to uh, your game, Indy, because you were playing, weren't you? And I am going to recommend on drive through the uh, it's called a Rogues Gallery of OSE characters, mm. so pre-generated characters. They're really good. Uh, you get some artwork with them, and there's a bit of background uh, flavour to them as well. Quite inventive uh, use of the character creation. So I'll put a link to them in the show notes. Yeah, they're good those, aren't they? I was surprised when you and I saw those. I thought I've never seen them before. Some trying to see some pass me by, but they are really very good, aren't they? I had to get you to print them for me, didn't I? Because uh, <laughs> my my printer was knackered, and that kind of it changed my uh, it changed my uh, grog meat really, because obviously before a grog meat you're printing out loads of stuff, and I saw <laughs> people were printing out loads of stuff because my printer was buggered. I wasn't able to do it, so I had to handmade make stuff, or else uh, you know, get, get, get you to print it. I made a mistake, you see, because my printer stopped working, and it said you need to refer it to an Epson engineer. And I went, "No, I'm not in to an engineer. Why? What? What's wrong?" And it was something. How hard to do can it be? The, How hard can it be? How can I be? <laughs> yeah, it, 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 something needed replacing. These pads that were in it that needed replacing. And so I went on YouTube, went onto eBay, bought the replacement part. How hard is it going to be? But they must have special tools for opening it. And so, yeah. And so, you know why they have special tools? You know why they have special tools, don't you? Yeah, because they don't want me to do it. Because so you have to call an engineer. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I rather wish I had. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I rather (laughs) wish I had because I really. Messed up my printer. It's beyond repair. <laughs> <laughs> it's beyond repair now. I think even if I've got an engineer to come and say, no, is not that, is not that uh, an, an example of where maybe Call of Cthulhu skill systems accurate? Because if you look yes. at a Call of Cthulhu skill sheet and it said repair printer 5%, you would say, that's ridiculous. That is so ridiculously low. It's not that hard to pr- prepare a, compr- a printer. It's not that hard. 5% is stupid. It should be at least 40%. Anyone can repair a printer. Come on. But clearly, it, it's 5%, isn't it? Yeah. Is it 1%? And also, yeah. And also, I don't tell my wife, there's a lot of ink on the carpet as well. And I can't get it up. What? Put, some, put, some, put, it, put something over it. I have done. Stack, stack yeah. some books. Stack a, start a book stack. Yeah, I have done. I have done. Ignore this. It's a rug covering a hole. So what were you playing in the afternoon? <laughs> uh, in the afternoon, I played Troika, run by Debbie, Dragon Girl 74. I, ran, I played that, um, Troika, which, again, uh, a bit of like this on Friday night. I, I've run a few games of Troika, but I've never played it. So I always quite, I like that, to get that experience as a player. Um, and it was a scenario, well, it was a scenario and a setting called Bones Deep, which is a Troika setting. It's a Troika system, but it's a setting where you yeah, play. Yeah, because it stands alone, doesn't it? It's a standard, standalone game, isn't it? You don't have to have Troika. Oh, I don't know. Well, I'm not sure about that. I don't know whether yeah. you do need Troika. I don't know. I didn't look yeah, in. I she had the book. I'd, she had the she had the Troika robot and she had the, the bones deep thing. But I, I don't know if you might need 
don't, don't anyone listening? Don't rush out and buy it. You might need Troika to play it. I don't know. I don't. Th- I don't think you do. I don't. Think I'm, you not do. Sure. I'm not sure. But uh, again, there's a disclaimer involved. What's it? What's involved? Yeah. What's involved? In it, it? What's involved is it's it's like a lot of these Troika settings. It's a bit a bit wacky, a bit zany. In that you play skeleton, you play the undead, as in you play skeletons on the seabed. It were once human, once alive, but are now reanimated. And one of the key things behind it is you've forgotten all your memories of being a human. So you have no memory of your human life or human objects. And the scenario was you had to go and uh, salvage for some, on behalf of some gangster crabs who you owed money to. You had to go and salvage a uh, golden barge, which is sunk to the bottom of the sea. Um, so you had to go in and repair it, or explore it, and deal with a few things that are in there and, and repair it, basically. But 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 in that within that process, you discover things, but you you, you don't know what they are. Um, and I suppose it's kind of an it's an interesting role playing challenge to to play it because it challenges you to as a as a player, you do know what these things are, but uh, your skeleton, unless unless they make certain roles, won't know what things are. So you might find an object that, as a player, you think, you know, we find some light, there's some lights and some wires. We know that they're wires and lights, but the skeletons don't, unless they make certain rolls when they touch these objects, they get memories of their previous life coming back to them. So you have to kind of role play it as in, we all know what that is, but none of us make the role. Therefore, we don't know what it is. We have to pretend we don't know what that is, which is kind of interesting. And uh, what, I, what I would say about Troika is, whilst it's fighting, it's advanced fighting fantasy, that's the, that's the system. Um, so it's straightforward enough. Um, and I suppose, you know, it's, it's nothing special from that point of view, as in it's, a, you know, you roll, a po- you do like an opposed roll for combat, like you're doing fighting fantasy, you roll two dice and try and roll under your skills. And you've got a look, you've got a look thing where you can burn look. That um, initiative system is is fantastic in play. It is a really good initiative system where you put tokens in the back, and you know each player has two tokens that go in the back, and there's an end of turn token that goes in the back, and the monsters have a certain number of tokens that go in the back. And what you do is you draw out the token, you draw out a token, and it might be a player, it might be a monster, or it could be the end of the turn, you know. Yeah. And, but the, at the end, it was a big fight with this kind of Hydra monster. And it was so much more exciting because of that initiative system, which is quick and it's quite tense because you were kind of winning against this Hydra. So what happened, it was the classic, it's like a aquatic Hydra. You cut a head off. You cut all its heads off in one combat round. It was dead. If any heads were still going, the stumps grew two more heads. They had to try and kill it in a round. But of course, with the Trico initiative system, that is quite, you, you don't know when the round's going to end, do you? Ah, uh, yeah. yeah. So there were moments where we thought, we've, we've nearly got it, we've nearly got it. And it was, oh, it's the end of the round. And you're thinking, oh, no. <laughs> no. Because <laughs> <laughs> at one point, I'm, my character had a spell um, which made predators, you could cast it on something. And predators will be drawn to it. So what I said was, I'm cast that on one of the heads. Does that mean the other heads attack that head? Debbie said, Yeah, that's a good idea. It does. 
But I had to wait for my token to come out before I could cast it. So I'm waiting and waiting for the token to come out. So every time thinking, come on, come on, come on, good for me. <laughs> I want my turn to do this, what I need to do. And then when I did that, cast that spell, it lasted for a turn. It lasted for the rest of the turn. So once I'd cast it, we were thinking, we don't want the end of the turn to come out. We don't want the end of the round to come out because that just negates everything I've done. So it, work, it does work really well as an initiative system. It's, it's, it, it's the, I'm trying to think now, it's, it's probably the only initiative system that I've encountered in a game that's quick and very exciting and unpredictable. Because, yeah. Yeah. you know, sometimes when people know their initiative order, people trying to play it tactically, don't they, and think, Okay, well, I'm going, I'll be going first. So what I'll do, I'll do this. Yeah. I'm going first. So he, he can't get me. I'm going to get him before he gets me. Oh, I'm going last. So I'll tell you what, you lot do this. And I'll go in last. So right at the end, I'll do. But in Trike, you, yeah. you don't know. You don't know. Yeah, it happened a lot to me that on uh, Friday with um, Tyson Effect, because we're using Savage Worlds. I yeah. somehow always used to get, I was getting three and two. Yeah. And, and yeah. so they were going first. So I didn't really land a blow on them because yeah. <laughs> all the way through it, they were had the upper hand, which I yeah. suppose in that in that setting was all right because you know they're super competent yeah, yeah. spy yeah. agents. So maybe they would, you know, when they be faster than the guards. But it does remove some of the jeopardy if you are unlucky enough to always pull that pull that out. Yeah. But with Troika, it does mix it up a bit, doesn't it? Because if that thing is nobody, nobody knows. Not even the games master knows. And it can be, and because a monster might get say four tokens, it, it can be monster, monster, monster. End yeah. of turn, new turn, monster. Because uh, yeah. Gav, Gav was playing, and Gav was like, I think he was quite shocked by it because he said, "Hang on, this means." A monster could attack us, and then it's the end of the turn, and we don't act, and then the monster attacks us again. Yeah, it's true. So the the fight at the end was very tense because it all hinged on initiative. You know, all absolutely yeah. all hinged on initiative. If the initiative had gone the wrong way, we would it would have. There was a point where we thought we're all going to die here. In the end, <laughs> we didn't. In the end, we didn't. Yeah. But. Um, it, it, it's it's fast. It was quite fascinating to uh, play it that way, uh, and quite clever as well. Because, like I said, the monster at the end was very dependent on you killing it in one round, getting all the heads chopped off in one round. If anything was left at the end of the round, you were in more trouble. You were in even more trouble than you were at the beginning. So that and that fitted really well with the initiative system, you know, because it kind of complemented the excitement of it, that you've got to deal with it. And we're, Oh, no, it's the end of the round. We haven't dealt with it. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> but, but no, it's a, it a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And uh, I, I really enjoyed uh, really enjoyed it. As a, you yeah. know, like I say, it's a quirky kind of setting. But it did, it did work. And it was a lot of fun. Good, after, yeah. good afternoon game as well. Sometimes with afternoon game when you're a bit tired. You know, that lull in the afternoon. You want something that's uh, fun, don't you? It's fun. Yeah. Intense. Yeah. It was intense in that it was exciting, but it was also fun. Lots of rolling yeah. on random tables and stuff like yeah. that. But actually, it's kind of, yeah, keeps you engaged. You know, you there need was some, the afternoon. There were some incredible 
you know, just walking around taking pictures of uh, the tables and the effort that the games masters had uh, gone to. And like just sort of 100 people there. If you interviewed now uh, people who went, they'd all have a different experience because people were playing different combinations of games. Um, but it was it was incredible. And um, somebody came up to me and said, you know, the standard of the games is like nothing else that I've uh, experienced before. And that that's amazing, isn't it? That it feels like everybody is trying to up the game for Grogmeat, which has its tensions, doesn't it? Because um, I think I, I got the sense that a lot of people were quite anxious going into it, the games busters. But ultimately, it paid off. It pays off, and I think what um, what also pays off is that people do know each other. I think when we've talked about Expo, there's always that problem with bigger conventions, you know. And and Elbow's the same because people know each other. This, this and this probably sounds making a bit cliquey, and I don't, I don't mean it to sound like that. Because uh, well, there there there's quite there are quite, there quite are like people. new people. Yeah, yeah, there are, there are, there are new people. There are, there are people who come come who are new to it, so it's not as if it's you know. Like the yeah. closed, closed shop kind of situation. I don't yeah. mean it like there that. Were, but there, what, were but 30, there were about 30 people who never attended before. So, yeah. you know, but it doesn't I mean, feel, yeah, go on. No, but what I mean is, even for people who haven't attended before, there is a sort of community around it, even if it's just online and people kind of know each other or at least are on the same wavelength. I think that's part of it as well. There's a sort of wavelength thing. Which makes games yeah. better because everyone around the table kind of somehow intuitively knows what all this, the sort of level it's pitched at and where it's. You see what I mean? Whereas yeah. when we've been to Expo, you can sometimes sit down with people who are coming at it from a completely different. They're, and I'm not saying their experience with role playing or their tasting role playing, or the way they do it is wrong, but they can sometimes come at it from a very different perspective. And there's a bit of a clash, we've, and we've encountered that, haven't we? At Expo, we've encountered. Yeah, it. Yeah. Whereas I think there's far less risk of that with something like drug drug meat because people are on the same wavelength. And they've that's, t- that's you're right, you're right, you're right. And they've um, talked to people um, through uh, social media channels, either on the Discord or yeah. through Twitter or whatever. I mean, that's that's worth the free uh, blue tick in anybody's book, isn't it? That yeah, think. come on, Elon. It was a blue yeah. check. I don't know what's going on anymore. Though. I don't either. I don't think he does. So that's, that, that's all the games that we've played. Um, yeah. But it's about the socialising and uh, friendships. It's really good to see yeah. people uh, really getting on, you know, getting on. I had some really good anecdotes, non gaming anecdotes. Mm. Like standing on, somebody standing on a stingray on a nudist beach in California. It's a story I won't forget because it came with pictures. To be fair, on a nudist beach, it, it could have been a lot worse than standing on one, couldn't it? So, yeah, so it could, yeah. You've got, to be, you've got to be grateful on a nudist beach. It was just your fault. Yeah. Can you, can you take away the pain, but keep the swelling? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> there, was, there was loads of good stuff. Um, music recommendation, uh, chats about um, different conventions, and the obligatory Doc Cowie and Gaz from the Smart Party talking about RuneQuest. It's it's almost like a ritual now. You've got to do it, haven't you? Mm, it's got to be done. Yeah, yeah. The polarised debate has to continue. It's and brilliant. it will continue to be picked up. <laughs> <laughs>
brilliant. It's rubbish. Or it is both brilliant and rubbish. Um, so that's it. That's another one over with. And thoughts turn to next year. Whether we do one, what format that takes. And we'll go through the usual thing of saying, let's get the auto arena. Let's do it this way. <laughs> yeah, bro, don't fix it. So I just want to thank everybody uh, who uh, was part of it and made the journey uh, to get there. Thank you for being part of it. Thank you to the Games Masters, both at Manchester and online because uh, virtual yeah. government was yeah. taking place simultaneously. And so there were loads of people playing games there as well. So that was uh, fantastic as well. So uh, that's it. I'm going to go for a lie down now, Blythe. I don't know about you. Yeah, I think I need it. Oh, no. They sat in our chairs. And thank you all for players and GMs coming to the Grog Meet. It's been a great weekend. I hope you all enjoyed it. And uh, thanks for being part of it. Uh, same again next year. Adios, amigos. Thank you very much.